So Jesus then goes out into the world. He goes from hill to hill to hill, from city to city to city, from crowd to crowd to crowd, and he begins to preach. And he preaches the kingdom of Yahweh and the love of Yahweh for all people, regardless of social status, gender, ethnicity, and even nationality. And we talked about this already. The Jews were entitled. They were so entitled. They believed that just because they were merely chosen by God and God gave them the law, they were automatically saved. The Jews, we talked about this already. The Jews did not believe that works saved them. They knew that works couldn't save you. They knew the Bible really well. They knew their own self. What they did believe was that God chose us and he didn't choose you Gentiles. And God gave us the law and he didn't give it to you. And we have prophets and you don't. We are saved. You're not. Go to hell. And that's basically their mentality. Now, that doesn't mean every single Jew believed that. But the intelligentia, the Pharisees, and the massive amount of people that they influenced did believe that. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. And remember, they also looked down on women. Thank God that I am not a Gentile, a dog, or a woman. That's what the Pharisees prayed. And God says, I, Jesus says, I don't care of your social status. Oh, because remember, they also believed that if you were poor or you were lame or blind, then God had cursed you for your sins. And healthy people were righteous people. Jesus says, I don't care of your social status. I don't care of your physical health. I don't care about your gender. I don't care about your ethnicity. I don't care about your nationality. The kingdom of God is for everyone. Just like the prophets said. Just like the prophets said. And just like John said, you think you're special, you Pharisees, because you come from Abraham? God can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. And so he preached this, that God was here to love. Did you miss it? Did you miss how Israel so deserved to die under the law after the golden calf, but yet God forgive them? Did you, did you miss how David deserved to die after violating Bathsheba and murdering, murdering Uriah, yet God forgive him? Do you realize that God deserved to punish Elijah harshly for saying, I quit and I'm going to disobey you? And yet, here you are talking about entitlement and that you're better than other people. And he didn't just preach this. He validated his message by doing miracles of healing the sick and raising the dead. He spoke with an authority and commanded power that was unlike anything that anyone had ever seen. Validating that Yahweh was truly at work with him, through him. Jesus made it very clear. I don't do miracles to make your life comfortable. I mean, think about how many people he's not healing in the world. How many people in Israel did he not heal and make their life happy-go-lucky? Okay, he, And he's not doing this for the world. He didn't just come to make people healthy. In fact, even when he raises people from the dead, like Lazarus, and even when he's making people healthy, like the blind man and, and Jairus' daughter and, and the woman with the hemorrhaging blood and, and the lame man that can't walk and is lowered down through the roof, guess what? Eventually they get to get sick and get old and die again. He, he's not completely undoing the curse. He's not undoing sin in the world yet. Or sorry, he's not undoing sickness yet. He's not undoing death yet. He's just proving that he is God. And he even says, why do I do miracles? I do miracles to validate that what I say and who I am is the truth. There's no way that God would allow me to do this if I was a false prophet. And so by the fact that I have the power of God seething through me, 
proves that what I say and what I claim that I am is truth. That's why he did miracles. Now, he also did miracles because he loved people and he cared for them. In fact, one of the most powerful miracles that he ever did was for the widow of Nan. The widow of Nan, every single miracle in the entire Bible, in the, the Gospels, they always ask Jesus to heal him, and he doesn't. But this is the only miracle where he's actually teaching. He's completely distracted looking over here, and there's this funeral procession that comes in and gets in their way and makes life difficult. And it's a woman who's lost her husband already, and now her son is dead. And it does, she never even notices Jesus. She's in a funeral procession for her son. She's not paying attention to things around her. And Jesus stops everything, and it says, And when he saw her, he was moved by his compassion, and he went to the boy and said, Young man, get up. And he was healed. It's the only miracle that he was not specifically asked to do it, yet only by his compassion that he was moved to do it. And so Jesus was compassionate. He did want to heal people, but he knew that the ultimate goal right now was not to undo the evil and the sin in the world, because that matters not unless you first undo sin. They had to first conquer sin before he could conquer sickness, death, and the grave. These miracles were mostly to validate who he was, as well as the love of the Father being demonstrated to people. Yet, the Jewish leaders and many of the people denied this. They resisted them just as the ancestors had in the wilderness, in the promised land. And Jesus had chosen 12 disciples in connection to the 12 tribes of Israel to show that he was the new Israel. In alignment with his teachings, these men were from all classes, backgrounds, who did not get along with each other in any kind of a way. In addition to them, many women and other people became his close disciples. Jesus discipled them into a powerful force of love and unity in the world. He brings in tax collectors, who everyone hated. Even the tax collectors probably hated themselves. He brought in tax collectors. He brought in zealots. Remember, we talked about the zealots in the intertestamental period, people who just want to burn the Roman government down in insurrection. He brought in failed Pharisees. Peter, John, and James were probably people who tried to become Pharisees and didn't make the cut, didn't even make the junior varsity team. And now they have had to go back to fishing, and yet Jesus brought them in. And so there's no way that a tax collector and a zealot is going to get along. There's no way that failed Pharisees are going to get along with these other people. And then not only that, women are following him. And even though they're not the original 12, he treats these women as if they are the original 12, just as close to him. And many women follow him, wealthy women, poor women. There's no way that any rabbi at this time period would have ever taken women on as his disciples. And yes, there's the immediate 12 that he gives responsibilities to. But Luke especially uses the word disciple equally of the 12 as well as the other people that follow him around throughout his entire life. And not only that, it's the women who discover the empty tomb. It's the women who first start telling everybody about everything. And it's the women who actually stay close to him at the cross. John and the women are the only two that do not abandon him, really, at the cross. And so he begins to gather all these people, proving that he really does mean that he'll accept anybody regardless of gender, social status, and nationality. So they begin to follow him. He goes into the temple at the very beginning of his life. And Jesus then went into the temple in Jerusalem, and he cleansed of its corruption. Now remember, God never really wanted a temple to begin with. A temple is easily corrupted with its pomp and its size and all that kind of stuff. And we already talked about this. Nobody goes in a cathedral in England and thinks, oh, wow, God must be awesome. 
They think about how amazing human craftsmanship is and all that kind of stuff. And so the temple was the same thing. The Israelites became arrogant and prideful about who they were because they had the temple. And look at what they built. And God is here with them. But remember, the glory of God never returned to the temple. But the temple still metaphysically, sorry, metaphorically represented the presence of God. And it still was a holy place in God's mind because if God was supposed to be there and the people thought that and it was connected to God, then it should be treated so. And so God still wanted to treat the temple as if it was holy, and it wasn't. They were cheating people through sacrifices. They were cheating people financially, and they were making about money and profit instead. So Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. And then he says this, Jesus referred to the temple as his father's house and told the Pharisees that the temple would be destroyed and that it would be raised up in three days. But we're told later by John, the narrator, that he was talking about his body. Now, this is powerful because Jesus is doing a couple things first. First, he's going into the temple and he's calling it my father's house. Nowhere would any Jew ever refer to Yahweh that intimately. Yahweh is the transcendent, wholly separate from creation, sovereign God of the universe. You do not call him father. You do not call him husband in any kind of a way, even though Jeremiah called him a husband. He is Yahweh the God. In fact, at this point, they haven't even been saying the name Yahweh anymore for all different kinds of reasons, but one of them was because of the holiness. And so Jesus says, my father, that's intimacy. That's, that's relational familiarity. And so they would have been horrified by him calling it. But then he refers to the corruption in his father's house. But then he says the father's house is actually his body. And that he's going to tear it down, and in three days he's going to rebuild it. Remember the prophet Ezekiel said, that he looked forward to the day that God would bring the temple. But even though he describes the coming of the temple, he actually never uses the word temple. And he describes this new building that will come one day and has multiple gates, meaning that the original tabernacle and temple had one gate. And the only way you could enter into it was from the east going westward with an animal sacrifice. And so Ezekiel visions this building one day that has multiple gates on all sides of the temple, meaning, and the, the gates are huge, and the walls are small, meaning that the whole idea of a wall is to keep people out, and the idea of a gate is to get people in. But the tabernacle and the temple had large walls and small gate and only one gate. Now this has many gates that are big. And so the idea is more people will be allowed in than what will be kept out in this new building. And then he describes it in a, such a way that you're like, there's no way that anybody could physically build this thing. And there's no way that this is ever going to happen. I mean, Israel could barely pull off the little things to start their history, let alone this. And then he actually begins to describe it as different, as like a group of people, that it seems to be more about people than it is a building. This is all the prophets. They talk about the coming. And then he describes the prophet coming, and the prophet is going to sit in the gate, and the prophet is going to be the head of the sacrifices. And that everyone will be allowed in because the prophet will be the head of the sacrifices. And most people are like, what does that mean? But now Jesus says, I am that temple. When, when, when God told David, I don't want you to build a temple, your descendant will be a, build a house for me. What Jesus is saying is, I am that descendant of David, and the house that we're going to build is the household of God. 
the family of God, the body of Christ. And so he's saying this temple and how I'm going to build it, I'm going to be the prophet and I am the sacrifice that will sit at the gate. And I will sit at the gate and you will kill me as the sacrifice. But in three days I will come back to life as the prophet king. And the only way in is going to be through me because I am the gate and I am the sacrifice now. But anyone can enter by faith outside the Mosaic law. And this is the idea that he begins to unpack, but they have no idea what he's even talking about. And they get mad at him and say, this is ridiculous. There's no way you can do that. It took us years to rebuild it. Therefore, Jesus is proving that I am the God-man and I am the more perfect temple. I'm a better temple than all those other things. I'm a better bread of life. I'm a better wine of God. I'm a better prophet. I'm a better king. I'm a better temple. He's also looking like the new Moses. Remember the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 18 prophesied that a day that another prophet just like Moses would come and this prophet would be the one that would deliver his people. Just like a king tried to kill Moses at a young birth, Herod tried to kill Jesus at a young birth. And just like he fled to escape that and then came back later, so did Jesus. And then just like Moses was baptized through the waters of going through the Red Sea, so was Jesus. And just like Moses went into the wilderness and was experienced all this testing, so did Jesus. And just like Moses then took them to Mount Sinai and gave them the law, Jesus is going to immediately go into the Sermon on the Mount and redefine the law, redefine their understanding of the law. This is where the Moses analogy changes and stops. He's going to go and give the Sermon on the Mount. And when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to begin to teach the law in a much deeper understanding. At this point, he's going to show that he's the better lawgiver. And in this sense, he's showing that not only is he the new Moses, but he's way better. Because Moses failed in the wilderness, and Jesus didn't. And Moses merely passed Ten Commandments off to the people, but Jesus is actually going to interpret them and explain them. And at this point, not only is he showing that he's the new Moses, he's showing he's a better Moses, and then he's going to leave the Moses analogy behind and go and do things that Moses never did because he is the better Moses. This is the idea that the Gospel of Matthew especially portraying. Jesus is now saying, I am the law in flesh and blood. And I'm going to give you the law one day through the Holy Spirit. Moses didn't teach what the law meant. Jesus is. And remember, he spoke with authority. He didn't say, well, Rabbi, this says this, and Rabbi, this says this, and Rabbi says this. There you go. What he says, you've heard it said, as in all these rabbis, but I tell you, this is how you'd interpret the law. No one ever spoke with that kind of authority. You don't say, I will tell you what the law means. How dare you? Only God can do that. And therefore, Jesus claimed to be God. He's claimed to be the better Moses, the better lawgiver, the more perfect prophet. And Jesus also showed that he was God by the fact that he had the authority to forgive sins, which only Yahweh can do. You can see this in Luke chapter 5. Remember, the men have this friend that is, cannot walk, and they bring him on a mat, and they're lowering him down through the ceiling. And of course, every time I read this, I always think about the guy who owns the house, and I think, what is he thinking? Like, everybody's like, wow, this is so amazing. He's thinking, I just put that roof up there. This is going to cost me so much money to repair it. But they lower him down. And Jesus says to him, man, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. 
I've also thought about that guy too sometimes. Like he's laying in the mat and he hasn't been walking most of his life. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He's like, what? I came here to walk. Like, what the heck? This isn't cool. So he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, in case you don't know what that means, the Pharisees tell you what it means when they say, this is ridiculous. Only God can forgive sins. Because remember, if you sin against me, I can say I forgive you. But all I'm saying is I'm not going to, reco- I'm not going to require a pound of flesh from you. I'm not going to make you owe me and jump through hoops and whip your back and crawl on broken glass to prove yourself worthy again for me because I forgive you. But I can't forgive you of your sins. I can forgive you and say I won't hold it against you, but I cannot forgive you of your sins. And even more than that, well, in addition to that, I can't forgive you of how you've wronged everybody else in the room. If I say all your sins are forgiven, Everybody else is going to be like, wait a minute, I didn't forgive that person. I want my pound of flesh. And, and, and you, can't for, you can't do this on behalf of God, yet Jesus does. He doesn't say, I forgive you. This guy's never wronged Jesus. He says, all your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees know exactly what that means. He's claimed to be God. How dare you? Now remember, nowhere does Jesus in the Bible ever say, I am God. But if I said I know everything and I am the most powerful being in this entire universe and I brought you into existence and I can take you out again, not only would you like kick me out, but you would know that's a God claim, even though I'm not literally saying I am God. And so he says this. Now Jesus then says to them, I'll prove it to you. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to walk? Technically, it's way easier to heal somebody than it is to forgive sins. Because even doctors can heal people. But doctors cannot die on a cross and conquer death in the grave and sin and come back again and bring you into eternal life. That's an act of God. So technically, healing sins is way easier than forgiving sins. Sorry. Healing sickness is way easier than forgiving sins. Yet, it's a lot harder to prove physical healing than is the healing of sins. If I say you're forgiven, it's not like we see something happen, like little stars start sparkling around them and that kind of stuff. I can say that to anybody, and you're like, oh, I'm caught up in the charismatic preacher and I feel it inside, like feeling, okay? But if I say, hey, you're going to walk now, everybody's going to be like, prove it. And so what Jesus is saying, it's harder to prove that you can walk, but it's harder to forgive sins. But to show you that I can do both, I will do what you physically can see to prove that I can do what you cannot see because there's no way that God would give me the miraculous power to heal this man if I was claimed to be God and I am not. And then he says, get up and walk. And by that point, it is very clear in the Gospels that Jesus is God. Not only does he believe that he is God, but he's proven that he's God because there's no way that God would allow this to happen. And then he heals on the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are like, oh my gosh, that's work. We all know that you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, seriously, if somebody was dying in your arms, would you not try to heal them on the Sabbath? And yet I heal this man who has been sick his entire life, and you're angry at it? And what better way to rest with God than to be healed? 
Okay, the whole point of the Sabbath is to cease from the things that get in the way of knowing and resting in God so that you can actually rest with him and know that he is the source of all your life and hope and that you're not wrapped up in your to-do list and your own success and accomplishments to make yourself worth valuable. What better way to know that God is God and to rest in him and to experience his, your total dependency in him than him healing you on the Sabbath? And then he says this, I tell you that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now here's the thing. The Sabbath, even the Jews believe that even God rested on the Sabbath when he created the world. Even God obeyed the law. In fact, by this point, the Jews are beginning to adopt some Kabbalic thinking. And in Kabbalah, they believe that even God has to obey the law. And so there's this theology that God does not make the law and can do whatever he wants with the law because whatever he says is the law and everything he'll do is righteous because he is righteous. They actually believe that God has to obey the law. And so even God obeys the Sabbath and rests. How dare you say you don't have to? And not only that, the Sabbath is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant. So when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, what he's saying is, I am Lord of creation. And I'm the Lord of the Mosaic Covenant. And in one statement, he says, I am in charge of all of creation and the law code that governs life in creation. I have the right to interpret it. The argument is, who has the right to interpret the law? The Pharisees are arguing, you cannot do this on the Sabbath. We are the correct interpreters. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I will heal and I will not die as a judgment of God. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the right to interpret it. Jesus then also went to the Gentiles. And not only did he teach them and heal them, but he also received them into the kingdom of Yahweh through their faith. And there are many examples of this in Matthew 8 and Matthew 15 and Luke 17 and John 4. He did what the Jews had failed to do. He not only lived a righteous life in such a way that it attracted the Gentiles, but he actually sought them out and brought them into the covenant community. 